The legislative days are dwindling from SDPB. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, and this is In the Moment Statehouse. Coming up this hour, a look at the narrative arc of legislative session. Where are we at in the story? SDPB's Lee Strubinger is with us. We'll have a report on conference committees and appropriations and the big issues left to be decided. We'll talk with female legislators from the state's largest counties. Senator Helene Duhamel is with us. We also welcome Senator Linda Duba. Our Dakota political junkies today are Seth Tupper and Kevin Wooster. We'll explore national politics. Senator Thune endorses Trump. Governor Nome talks about the vice presidency and more, plus the impact of the session on school districts later in the hour. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Welcome to In the Moment State House on SDPB. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. We're devoting the hour to our state legislative coverage. So once again, we kick off the hour and turn to SDPB's politics and public policy reporter. Lee Strubinger is joining us from SDPB's Capitol Studios in Pierre. Lee, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Yeah, good to be here, Lori. Help people understand where we are at in the session right now and some of the things that are really up in the air. Yeah, so I think you described it quite well. A lot of things are kind of up in the air at this point, and that's just kind of how things uh, start to look towards the end of session. Um, one of the things that uh, was uh, talked about earlier this morning was uh, something that I reported on uh, earlier this year. Um, it had a lot of traction going forward, and that was to uh, basically revert the state's uh, kind of residency requirements to register to vote in an election back to what it was uh, prior to uh, last year. So, um, and that really um, sort of hit kind of a wall uh, when it got to the House. It ended up being tabled. And so that basically um, removed what we have on the law currently, which is this kind of uh, fixed permanent dwelling requirement. And you have to uh, prove that you've been at a fixed permanent dwelling for 30 days before you can uh, register to vote. There are a lot of concerns that are out there about uh, what that would kind of mean um, for uh, people, whether they're uh, uh, RV voters or, or others who use this kind of mail forwarding service. A lot of folks are concerned about whether or not it's unconstitutional. This is um, the this is the Ed Hockley story. This is the Ed That's Hockley how I remember story, it because yes. you yep. interviewed yes. Ed Hockley who who could vote in South Dakota. Tell us a little bit about your interview with Ed Hockley and as an example, this person who's not really a resident, you're not going to see him um, at the grocery store, but yet he is and can vote. Help us uh, understand the issue a little more deeply, please. Yeah, and what and what is Ed Hockley like? Yeah, you might not see Ed Hockley <laughs> at your local Hy-Vee, but um, <laughs> I will say he has voted in the last uh, two elections. Okay. Uh, when I when I contacted him, he de he declined to comment, but said that he is uh, uh, a resident of South Dakota. Um, but so in order to be a resident in the state, you have to spend at least uh, one night here, and then you're able to qualify. Um, and as long as you have an address that you can use, um, you can take that to the Department of Public Safety and get your license, and then you're able to um, register to vote, etc. Um, so that's kind of like how our law sort of looks now. That would get complicated for um, uh, anybody in a similar situation uh, as former retired NFL referee Ed Hockley. <laughs> uh, 
uh, if they were to try and register to vote now. They would have to prove that they have a kind of fixed permanent dwelling that they live in. Um, and where that also gets uh, sort of complicated is, you know, some of the uh, homeless and transient population within the state. Um, they also will have trouble sort of proving that they live in like a physical um, place. So that mm. there's there's some there's some uh, concerns there, constitutional concerns um, about you know voting in federal elections at that point. All right. So the ACLU and has some concerns, particularly about the unhoused population. What happens next? Explain to us how some of these things that uh, maybe the Senate and the House in South Dakota doesn't agree on. How will mm -hmm. they come to agreement with only seven actual legislative days left? That includes veto day. Yeah. So assuming that. Uh, this kind of update to uh, this kind of issue um, passes on the House floor, it gets sent back to the Senate, and the Senate will either agree with those changes or they won't, and then they'll kind of hash out their differences in these kind of conference committees, um, which it kind of sounds like that's what everybody's kind of anticipating. Mm -hmm. um, the real, the real uh, thing that a lot of people are trying to avoid here is um, getting sued, uh, given, that it's a, that given that it's an election year. Um, there have been some uh, conservative commentate, national conservative commentators who've kind of called out uh, the bill that I, w that I reported on earlier that was making its way through the legislature. And so some see uh, that this is a reason why they're kind of going back and addressing this. And what the House has done uh, just this morning, um, there is a 15-day requirement, um, and they want to expand that to prior to an election, the current law is 15, so they would kind of double that time frame that you have to register to vote before, before you can vote. All right, other big issues that you think might go to conference committee, things that need to be agreed on before we let you go, Lee? Yeah, there's still some outstanding, really big policy proposals that are out there. One of them is Senate Bill 201. It kind of deals with the, a lot of the carbon pipeline, eminent domain uh, issues that are, that are still out there. Um, there was some activity on the House side and so that Senate, that Senate bill will have to go back to the Senate and, um, you know, if they agree, you know, it'll, it'll g make its way to the governor's desk, but they'll probably have to conference on that if they don't agree with those. And then obviously the big thing heading into the last week is the budget itself. Mm -hmm. And um, the budget being the big, the big item, the things that we still don't know is, you know, what might the big three um, ultimately get a lot of the the push is four percent for state employees uh, education funding and um, community service providers there's also uh, some discussion about what to do with a lot of the one-time dollars there's like 41 uh, million in one-time money that's still out there uh, we have these massive uh, uh, prison projects in the state that they really want to get funded and pay with cash and avoid having a bond there's also a lot of a lot of other ideas out there as well so all that's going to take shape uh, next week. All right. Um, last uh, last question for you. The state of Alabama's Supreme Court ha had a very uh, well-known, famous ruling now that we're all considering what the impact might be of South Dakota, where they ruled that embryos outside of the uterus, so think in, in vitro fertilization clinics and our, our children. And uh, looking at our abortion laws and the definitions that we have, you've asked around to find out if anybody in South Dakota is thinking about what that impact might be on the South Dakota medical community and on people who are, are trying for IVF. Have you heard any responses? Yeah, so I, I went up to um, the uh, uh, South Dakota Right to Life and asked them their kind of thoughts on this. They hadn't studied that ruling closely, so they didn't have any that they wanted to share. Uh, there was also uh, a Republican representative who wanted to 
uh, really kind of regulate surrogacy in the state. Uh, those kind of uh, pushes were, were ultimately rejected, but that's something that's been on his mind. He's uh, uh, anti-abortion, pro-life lawmaker, um, also on the board of South Dakota Right to Life. Um, and he didn't have any thoughts that, that he really had kind of about that ruling uh, at this point. Um, I talked to some folks who are surrogacy advocates here in the state. They, they, you know, they don't see this ruling uh, having a particular effect here yet, um, but there is, there is concern about what this could mean for uh, IVF and, and surrogacy going forward. All right, Lee Strubinger, thank you so much. You're with In the Moment State House on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, this is the time during the session when all eyes turn to the Appropriations Committee. That's the committee that decides who gets what money for what project. And we're going to talk with one of the committee members now. We have Linda Duba with us, a representative from um, Minnehaha County in Sioux Falls. <laughs> Linda Duba, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lori. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Tell us a little bit first before we get into appropriations and some of the decisions that have to be made. Um, do you have some wins that you think have been a, a success story for this year's legislative session so far? You know, we've had a few wins. Um, there are four bills that are going to the governor's desk. Uh, one of them is on Indian welfare. It's really important um, to develop a commission around that. You know, it's we really need to focus because when you look at the uh, desperate health outcomes on the reservation versus the rest of the state, disparate, we really need to understand how what we're doing and what's not working and how we improve the overall stability and health care of the individuals in our Native American population. Um, we'll have a couple of homeless bills coming forward, which are really important. One of them provides homeless people with birth certificates and the other with IDs. And with those two pieces of, of those two documents, our homeless population, who many of them live in temporary shelters, will have the opportunity to find gainful employment and hopefully pull themselves up out of their situation. And that's what we're here to do. Um, I also, you know, people are chuckling about it, the feral cat bill that I worked with Senator Wheeler on, but believe it or not, there are several organizations across the state, nonprofits, who want to help reduce the feral cat population humanely, and because of state statute, you know, we weren't able to do that. Uh, so they would have been fined, and, and believe it or not, if you take possession of, a, of an animal and then you let them out into the wild, that is considered abandonment. So we found a narrow carve out for them. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are many other things that we're doing. Um, it's coming down to uh, a lot of appropriations bills that are going to see the floor today. And, and then we'll determine from a budgetary standpoint how we support them. One in particular that uh, I've been working on now, this is about the third year in a row, is uh, victims of crime funding for our shelters uh, for mental health support for people who are victims of abuse and sexual assault. And uh, we are in dire straits because our federal funding has been cut so dramatically. So, you know, there are things that are still out there that are in flux, and, and we need to make decisions on those, yeah. hopefully in the positive sense. Are there uh, disappointments this session, things that you really thought had traction or should have gained bipartisan support but just didn't? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to talk about, you know, we heard a lot about um, children this session and in particular we focused on food insecurity uh, 
you know, there were there were three bills in particular. One dealing um, with, you know, making up that difference for families, free and reduced lunch. Caden uh, Whitman brought that bill. It didn't get out of committee. We had another one um, that Tyler Tortson brought uh, that died in, I, I believe it, it was killed in committee as well. And that was looking at raising the amount that people could qualify for reduced lunch, again, to help out those families who are the working poor. That didn't even, I don't think that made it out of committee. And then I actually had a bill that was compelling the governor and two departments to just sign the agreement that we would bring um, our summer EBT SNAP program to children who are on free and reduced lunch. You know, there was money in the bill, but really the money is being provided by the federal government completely. And there was a small administrative fee that we would have had to do. But what our, what our departments and our governor just need to do is say yes. We still have that opportunity. And, you know, I brought the bill because I think it's important that we address food insecurity across the state of South Dakota. We got it out of uh, House Health and Human Services, but I couldn't convince my counterparts in appropriations, which is really unfortunate. Is there a mindset shift that you need that you need as you listen to their opposition? Were they saying things that you thought, okay, if I could just get them to see this, they might make a different decision? Um, are there is there a common ground that you think you can eventually get to, or do you think this is just not going to be an issue the Republicans are concerned with? I think there are enough people out there that understand that food insecurity is real and that there are plenty of families. And the data that I showed them showed that it was, it was rampant across all counties and in all districts. But I think the key is, is that there's this, this mindset that, you know, people are not being responsible for their children, which is just absolutely false. Now, there are bad actors out there. There are people out there, uh, you know, Senator Maher made the comment in appropriations that, you know, people that get their SNAP cards, they, they walk outside and they, they have a $500 SNAP card and they'll, they'll sell it for $100 so that they can, you know, get their drugs or alcohol. Well, we've got a different problem there, and that's called substance abuse, you know, and that's a bigger issue. But what we're trying to do here is make sure that our children, you know, in their most important and developing years are getting the food that they need. And so there's this prevailing attitude that people are irresponsible, and that's just not true. I mean, I, I challenge any legislator to walk the streets of my district with me or look at the data that I supplied them in their own districts and meet those families where they're at and, and talk to them. Mm -hmm. But until that happens, until they realize that this is a real problem, um, this mentality will not change that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What happens next with appropriations? What do you think voters need to know, especially if they still want a voice in how some of these decisions are made before the session ends? Well, we'll be handling some bills on the House floor today that are dealing with appropriations. The one I mentioned about the, you know, the victims of crime funding and some others. Um, and believe me, our inboxes are full of their uh, requests. And the Senate is also taking up some money bills as well. But really what's happening right now is I'm meeting with my fellow House appropriators. The Senate Appropriations Committee is meeting. We each have our set of priorities, both for one-time funds and for ongoing, how we're gonna spend it. Um, we're trying to come to consensus. I believe that we will do that by Monday or Tuesday at the latest and, and you know, we'll be very responsible bringing that bill, those bills to the floor, to the, to the population. Representative Linda Duba, thank you so much for being here. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Lori. Appreciate it.
This is In the Moment State House on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, there are seven legislative days to go total. That includes veto day. And state lawmakers are engaged in the annual appropriations dance. One casualty this week, a joint committee tabled House Bill 1206. That bill would have provided funding to the Douglas School District to build a new elementary school. We're checking in today with lawmakers from the state's most populated counties. Senator Helene Duhamel is a Republican serving Pennington County and is seated in SDPB's studios in our Capitol building in Pierce. Senator Duhamel, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for making time. Thank you. Good to join you. Help people understand before we get into maybe some of your priorities as we head toward the end of session. But let's go back to the school in the Douglas School District, the connection with Ellsworth Air Force Base, and some of the things that you think not only lawmakers, but South Dakotans as a whole need to start considering as the new Raiders come and the Ellsworth Air Force Base changes and evolves for where we're at now, that's gonna change uh, the, the political dynamic of, of who we are as a state as well. Help us set up uh, kind of how you're thinking about that right now, please. Thank you, very forward thinking on your part. Um, before too long, I believe that Ellsworth will be our largest employer in this state. So we are rarely asked, but when asked by the Department of Defense to help I think we should. And uh, so much of the conversation this session was people with a very parochial look at, hey, my school district needs a school. Why aren't you helping my district? Uh, what is different about what's happening at Ellsworth? People don't seem to really understand what's happening in our state. If you just step back a short time, we fought so hard to remove Ellsworth from the base realignment and closure list. We have moved an interstate interchange. We have moved homes and businesses out of the accident potential zone. We fought hard for the Powder River Training Basin. And we fought super hard to get that B-21 landed at Ellsworth, the main training base. So now when the military asks us, as they did recently with their Liberty Center and, a, and an opportunity for a training location, and now most recently for help with funding a school, to educate the children of the airmen, uh, we don't think it's an appropriate way to spend our money. And we have money this year. Our legislators have decided it's not an appropriate use. And I really uh, beg to disagree and ask the entire state to look at what's happening at Ellsworth Air Force Base. It's our only federal military installation. Uh, we have some 1,500 kids coming every year, about 100 a year, uh, until 2040. And twice in our state's history with Governor Mickelson have we helped the Douglas Ellsworth School System fund a middle school and a high school. They're asking for the same, to have the state chip in 25% of an elementary school that is full. And most of those B-21 airmen are coming and they have young children that will be coming into an elementary school. And just so people know, what's happening at Ellsworth right now, $2 billion of construction. If you think about the sales tax and the excise tax, that's $84 million going to the state of South Dakota. That's helping every school district in our state. And yet, we're not helping the district most impacted by this growth. Hmm. 
South Dakota political leaders and lawmakers are often ambivalent about federal programs. Some they like, some they don't like. Clearly, there's a lot of federal money that comes to South Dakota. As we look at what's happening internationally and some of the missions that we've seen Ellsworth fighter pilots go on lately, this is a, a topic that goes beyond the South Dakota borders. What do you want to leave people with um, before we get to some of your other priorities just about this base and its role in, in the future? You're, you're so right. The role of Ellsworth on the global stage is significant right now. and. Um, we have an opportunity to house even more B-21s, but Texas will compete with us. This is our opportunity to let the nation and the world know that we value what Ellsworth does and brings for our nation. And I hope to spend the summer opening our legislators' eyes to how significant this is and what a small ask it is, but a large statement to the Department of Defense on where South Dakota stands when it comes to housing Ellsworth Air Force Base and more B-21s and their significance in our future national and global defense. Senator Duhamel, other issues that are top of mind for you as we look at the final days of session? Um, you know, we were delayed a year, but the spending of these federal ARPA dollars, that's true economic development that will reach into every corner of our state Clearly, I am still championing a uh, uh, pipeline of Missouri River water all the way to western South Dakota. That'll be a big lift. Uh, but we think we have the funding to just finish that study. And if we can finish that study, we think it jumpstarts this pipeline by two years, allows us to get on the Bureau of Reclamation list, and really make a difference for the very arid western part of the South Dakota. All right. It's all about those water projects, Senator. Mm -hmm. Senator yeah. Helene Duhamel, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. All right. We are going to head to our Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio now in Rapid City, where we have uh, seated on the western side of the state. Uh, some folks for today's Dakota Political Junkies Conversation. Seth Tupper is with us. He is editor-in-chief of South Dakota Searchlight, and he is joined by a familiar voice to the program, another familiar voice, Kevin Wooster, our friend, longtime South Dakota journalist. Okay, Seth Tupper's our friend, too. I'm just excited to hear from Kevin today. So they are the junkies today, and uh, Seth, welcome. Thanks for being here. You're welcome, and I don't know if I qualify for a long time, 20 years, but that's, that, that pales in comparison Not to what uh, Kevin has on me over there. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin, hey, welcome back. Hey, 20 <laughs> years seems like yesterday to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of experience around the table here, so I want to yeah. start with you, Seth, because uh, Helene Duhamel just said something about water and getting it to the Black Hills region, and we didn't plan to talk about this, but it seems like you probably have some thoughts on that uh, right away. You want to start there? Well, I wish I could respond intelligently to what Helene uh, uh, said, but Kevin was talking my ear off over here, so I didn't oh, hear. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. No. <laughs> but, no. but, yeah, no, I, I know I, that she's yeah. been a real champion for that, and, and, you know, she was bitterly disappointed last year. I think she had a bill that came down to the very last day of the yeah. session that, you know, would have would have brought money out here. So, so she's worked really hard at that uh, to bring attention to that issue, and there are a lot of folks out here in Rapid City who do really believe that we need a – 
uh, a pipeline from the Missouri River, and we need to get working on that to um, to uh, address water needs over 10, 25, 50 years. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a really important issue out here. We don't we don't have the the Missouri River. We don't have all the the lakes that they have in eastern South Dakota. Um, you know, uh, our water supply is a lot more limited. Yeah, Seth wrote a great piece about water rights and who can claim them. I find that at SouthDakotaSearchlight.com. I'll I'll help you out there, Seth. The lesson is never talk sure. during the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about national politics, uh, because we have a uh, candidate, former president, Donald Trump, who is uh, the front runner and all but has cinched the, the nomination really at this point to be the Republicans' choice for the presidential race in the fall. Um, put out his short list of vice presidential candidates. Uh, Governor Kristen Noem, one of five people that he mentioned would be a great candidate. She has said she had a good long talk. Those are her words. Um, good long talk with uh, former President Trump. And yet uh, Dakota Scout uh, did an interview. I was watching it online this morning. She sounded a little bit. They asked her how she felt about things. And she said, I don't know how to feel. I want him to win. Um, there are a lot of people talking about whether or not she will be a vice presidential pick and what happens between now and November if she is. So, um, Kevin, why don't you start us out with some of the you know political headlines that are really swirling around our governor right now and what this might mean for the state of South Dakota. What do you think? Well, I, I, I was talking beforehand that one of the things I've finally learned with Christy Noem is not to sell her short. Uh, she's uh, won everything she's run for, and there's been some tough races. And, and early on, I kind of dismissed this idea. But as time grew and uh, time went on and, and her profile grew and her connection with Trump grew and her total commitment to Donald Trump grew, which you have to be totally committed to Donald Trump and totally loyal, which she has been, and his reactions and responses to her, you know, I'm not surprised she's in the, on the short list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, was surprised. I listened to that Dakota Stout, uh, uh, you know, the, the video, the audio, and, and I was surprised when she said she wasn't sure how to feel about it because I would have thought she'd have been a little bit more prepared with that part when somebody asked that question. And otherwise, she didn't really say much that surprised me that mm-hmm. she's, she, did he meet with her and say, listen, I've got another choice, but I wanted to have a conversation with you about it? Or did he say, yeah, you're still in it. We're getting close. Hang in there. I don't know. And yeah. uh, that's going to be, you know, she's going to be a, a newsmaker on this. as She's been a newsmaker on so many other things. Um, Seth, we heard Senator John Thune give his endorsement to uh, Donald Trump, the former president, to be the next president. We also learned just this morning that Mitch McConnell is uh, not going to be in the picture in the future, that he's not running for re-election. I believe that's the, the news that was passed down to me this morning. So a lot is changing right now. Were you surprised at either of those pieces sort of moving around the chessboard like they have? Um, <clears throat> well, the timing of Thune's endorsement of Trump now looks more interesting. Obviously, uh, you know, now that we know it came just a week or so before Mitch McConnell announced that he's going to step down as the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. So certainly uh, it looks like or it, it, it could be a possibility that if you're going to get the, the top job uh, to lead the Republicans in the Senate, if uh, if Trump wins, uh, you're going to have to be a Trump guy. And so, uh, you know, if Thune wants the top job, uh, he's, he's going to have to get in line uh, because if Trump wins, 
you're going to need his endorsement to become the leader of the Senate uh, among the Republicans. So I don't know if one thing had anything to do with the other, but obviously, you know, it was what about a week ago Thune said, uh, I endorse Trump. And, and then the next week, uh, McConnell and he and Thune work very closely. Uh, Thune is the number two uh, Republican in the Senate behind McConnell. They're in leadership together and they work very closely. So, you know, about a week later, McConnell says, I'm going to step down. So you wonder if those two are, are connected. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been a roller coaster for Thune with Trump. Obviously, if, if we recall, um, he was the first uh, senator, I believe, to say that Trump should drop out of the race uh, back in 2016 after the Access Hollywood tapes came out. Uh, and, you know, it, it just uh, I don't know how long ago was it uh, when Trump had his rally in Rapid City here. They put a picture of John Thune on the on the screen in the arena and everybody booed uh, in, in the Republican Party uh, here in South Dakota. So. Uh, it's definitely been a bumpy ride, but it looks like he's 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 maybe realized that uh, you know for the future, if if Trump's going to win, he's going to have to be on on Team Trump. Mm. All right, I might have set that up a little confusing. Mitch McConnell is not leaving the Senate, to be clear, just not going to be in that leadership position going forward in the fall. Um, I want to ask you both for your thoughts on Governor Christie Nome dealing with the media, because I think Seth, you mentioned, or no, Kevin, you mentioned, there's a little you know a little bit of surprise that when they asked her. Um, Austin Goss and Joe Sneavy were doing that interview when they said, well, how do you, you know, how do you feel about this? She didn't seem to have an answer. Either she didn't have it prepared or she, you know, specifically had prepared to say, I don't know how to feel about it, but I want to see him win. So that was either a planned response or a spontaneous response. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how she has controlled the the kinds of interviews that she sits for, the people that she's willing to talk with. You know, we know she has a big presence on Fox, Fox News as she moves forward trying to get votes for uh, the former president. Does she need to change that, double down on it, get better? Is she already a top-notch interviewer? What are some of your thoughts about how she handles the media, especially the national media? Kevin, you start with that, please. Well, I think we need to 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 learn how she handles the national media because mostly she only handles one portion of it, and that's the Fox News, Breitbart type, uh, Newsmax type uh, media. And she she's had some exchanges with people, a couple recently, from what we would, I would call the more mainstream uh, media, national media, but she hasn't really been challenged very much by them, and they they can be pretty tough and. Uh, so I don't know exactly how much of that she'll allow. Uh, uh, Senator Mike Rounds basically does interviews with anybody who wants to talk to him, and that's just the way he, he has always been. That's the way he was, was as a governor, pretty much. And uh, she hasn't been that, that way with the uh, state media, with the in-state media. And, it, uh, of course, it leads all of us to wonder, other governors seem to need us more than she needs us or thinks she needs us. And part of that is the new social media world that she's in, that, you know, you can go directly to people. But part of it is, I would suspect, is that she was looking beyond us a lot of time to the issue we're talking about now with a possible VP, uh, uh, you know, position or a cabinet position. Secretary of Agriculture has been mentioned with her. And, and you know, I think she should be more open and accessible to to all media in South Dakota, mm. I don't. I suspect she may not be. Yeah, Seth, what do you want to add to this? Well, you know, I, if she does get on the Trump ticket, I don't think it'll matter. You know, um, Trump 
dominates, you know, the media and, and, and gets himself in the headlines every day, 20 times a day. And, uh, you know, I don't think at this point uh, anybody's going to vote for Trump or not vote for Trump based on who his running mate is or isn't. I mean, you know, everybody's opinions yeah. about Trump are set at this point. That may have mattered, you know, the first time he ran when the thought was he needed somebody like a Mike Pence on the ticket to sort of calm the fears of moderate Republicans about what he would be like when he was president. But, you know, we know Trump now. Uh, we know what he is. You either like him or you don't. I just, you know, um, so I, d I don't know that uh, the, anything will matter about his, his running yeah. mate. Um, you know, she just would have to stand there and look capable of taking over if something happened to him and, and toe, the, toe the line with yeah. what he wants her to do, and that's about it. She has to think about her political future, though. I mean, Mike, Mike, Mike Pence is a great example of that. There, there is uh, danger in an association with Trump because you have to, you have to be so loyal to him. And it, Mike Pence reached a point where he just said, I can't do this for you. Mm -hmm. And look what happened to him. Now, would Governor Noem, if she had been in Mike Pence's position, would she have certified? Would she have done her role in, in that certification process for that election? I'm not sure she would have. I don't know what to think anymore. But mm. at one point, I would have said, sure, she would have. Our three members of Congress did. That's who they are. That's the kind of people we've always elected. I'm not sure what uh, Governor Nome would have done if she'd been in Mike Pence's position. Mm. Seth, you read um, uh, Not My First Rodeo, Governor Christine Nome's first book. She has another book coming out, and you've written extensively about how she she talks and, and, and you know, um, puts together her policies, including this notion of, you know, freedom uh, as being, you know, freedom works here and uh, the way we, you know, she capitalizes the word freedom. And are there any thoughts that you have before I want to make sure we talk a little bit about lithium before we uh, move on and bring things back to this, the state house? But any final thoughts that you have, Seth, about just the way she communicates and whether that is going to be as effective on a national stage? as she wants it to be, or is it more effective on the national stage than it really has been locally? What do you think? Well, I think, I think you do make a point there. She has gotten really skilled at, at talking to uh, the conservative media bubble, basically. And this whole thing, I, I wrote a commentary about how she capitalizes the F in freedom every time she writes it, and that's true. She's still doing that to this day <laughs> every time she posts on social media or issues a weekly column for, for newspapers or whatever. Every F is capitalized every time she writes freedom. And that's a gimmicky thing that, that plays well, uh, you know, to her base, but, and, and I think would continue to serve her well as, a, as Trump's running mate. But I think you make a good point that if she's going to go beyond that, if she becomes vice president and ultimately wants to run for president, she's going to have to break out of that box and appeal to a broader uh, audience of people. And that'll be the true test is can, can she do that after so many years of really learning and focusing on how to communicate just to a subset of the, of the electorate? All right, let's wrap up with uh, lithium tax and some of the conversations that we saw in Pier about lithium and whether or not it should be taxed at all. Seth, catch us up on, on this story and help us understand the basics, if you would. Yeah, well, there's been an effort the last two years in the legislature to uh, impose a tax on lithium mining uh, because there's a lot of exploration going on in the Black Hills. Lithium is used in uh, lithium-ion batteries to power electric vehicles and devices and things. And uh, it's failed both times. It came really close to passing this year and failed. And uh, I wanted to write about it because I, I knew that uh, we had been pretty late to tax gold in South Dakota, uh, even though gold was discovered in the 1870s and mined continuously up, up until today. Uh, we didn't tax gold mining in South Dakota until 1935. And that was because legislators just refused to do it. 
uh, and there was a lot of pressure from, uh, you know, very powerful, powerful home stake mine uh, lobbying against that. And uh, the only reason we ended up doing it is because it was the depression and we were desperate for revenue. And there were some Democrats in, in power at the time. There was a Democratic governor and uh, they ended up imposing that tax. And my point in the commentary was, you know, do we really want to wait that long again, 50 years or whatever, into the advancement of an industry? By the time we taxed uh, gold in South Dakota, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of uh, gold had already been taken out of the ground. And we didn't uh, derive any any tax benefit out of out of the depletion of that resource for for the state as a whole. So mm -hmm. it just it just kind of brings up the point that you want to do these things early on um, before it gets away from you. Yeah, Kevin Wooster, any thoughts on 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 that on sort of some of the legislation that's important to the Black Hills in particular? Well, these are precious resources, and the process of extracting them is a, you know can be a messy one for the environment and. We don't want to be late to the party when it comes to creating a tax, and we don't want to be late, especially when it comes to setting up a framework to make sure we have the protection of the environment and the reclamation process and a way to pay for them. And uh, so I think Seth is, what it, the, the reporting he's done has been extraordinarily important, and I hope people pay attention to it, uh, especially people in peer. Mm. All right, you can find Seth Tupper's The Work of a Longtime Journalist on the website <laughs> SouthDakotaSearchlight.com. <laughs> Kevin Wooster, you can find his previous and future work for SDPB on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. Gentlemen, friends, I thank you. We'll see you next time. You are with In the Moment State House on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. We're going to take another look at teacher compensation today and particularly focus in on the impact on school districts. Rob Bonson is executive director of the School Administrators of South Dakota and Doug Wormadal is the executive director of the Associated School Boards of South Dakota. They're gathered in SDPB's uh, studios in our Capitol building for an update on their legislative priorities. Rob Bonson, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lori. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Doug Wormadal, welcome as well. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Lori. I want to start with this compensation uh, package, teacher pay, but it's about more than pay, of course. Governor Kristi Noem said, um, uh, rather you know, famously, I guess I'm going to call it famously, in South Dakota famously, <laughs> in her state of the state and budget address that she's had these concerns about the pay being increased for teachers, but teachers not seeing that increase, which we all know is a really complicated issue. But the state lawmakers have been looking at accountability measures. So, Rob, let's start with you and, and tell us a little bit about what's happened since that uh, initial speech from the governor in the legislative process as we've seen it unfold these past few months. Well, sure, Laurie. And I think, first of all, we need to start with the facts. And that mm -hmm. is that uh, as we have gone back and look at, looked at the numbers and done a true comparison on, uh, on dollar for dollar, year for year, as you extrapolate that out over the time frame, Schools absolutely have been giving uh, the monies that are coming into their general funds out to the teachers to the best of their ability um, in total compensation and salary. The metric that gets used, as you know, across the country is from the NEA, and that, that singles out um, salary in that comparison. And um, we all know there's more to paying teachers than just putting mm -hmm. it in salary. There's insurance, there's retirement, there's taxes, there's all those things. And when you look at, uh, over time, what we have done since Blue Ribbon uh, work went into play and the half-cent sales tax came in, um, in the governor's speech, it was 26.2% or, or something like that that the state has put into teacher compensation. 
and a number of schools are at 39% of what they put in, so they've gone above and beyond. Um, some are at 30%, and certainly there are schools that maybe haven't put everything in that they could, but we have 147 school districts in the state with 147 different uh, challenges and school boards that determine where that money goes. So do you think, Rob, there need to be more accountability measures? Less, I mean, we're starting with the facts, but where do we need to go next is what I'm asking. Okay, I would say, first of all, um, school districts, administrators, we are not afraid of accountability. Um, let us know what the bar is and, and we will do our best to hit that. Um, we're hoping to come out of this session with uh, whatever um, bill we can move forward that uh, not only holds schools accountable, but is also workable. And that's the process we're in right now uh, with 1048, is trying to get a piece of legislation that we believe will work for both sides. Um, Doug Wormadal, what do you want to add first to what Rob said about this idea of teacher compensation, and then we'll expand the conversation a little bit. Well, I think the, uh, I believe in the accountability measure because that's what uh, the citizens of South Dakota uh, want, um, dating all the way back to the um, Blue Ribbon Task Force. But I believe equally in the creativity of South Dakota's administrators and school boards in being able to respond to that. So I'm confident we're going to find uh, something that honors the governor's vision and the, and the, uh, the pace that she set there. I think we'll find uh, something that's responsive to the legislator's direction. And then in the midst of that, uh, marry all of that to the individual circumstances of the school districts. And that's, that's really where the challenge is, is because as you set these visions and you set these numbers and you set these procedures, it does have to, in the end, uh, translate into what each of the 148 school districts do to be responsive to that. So, and superintendents and school boards are used to being creative with limited resources and with even generous resources in, in some of the last couple of cycles. So we were, we're going to find ways to be successful here. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about any other pieces of legislation that you either think, you know, went under the radar this session that are important to school districts or are still being discussed that you find, you know, have a high level of priority for you. Rob, anything you want to uh, surface or elevate here? Um, you know, uh, since last session, uh, we know we'll probably see this going into the future, into perpetuity, but um, uh, there was another run at the voucher um, bill this year mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, having, having student, well, we have student choice, we have parent choice in South Dakota for alternative instruction, private school or public school, and they're all great choices. Um, the challenge we have is there's uh, individuals and groups that would like to open up a voucher program and basically allow parents to take their um, FTE or their per student allocation, I should say, and take that wherever they want to go. And if we were all flush with money in the state of South Dakota and we could afford more than one system, I think that would be an okay option. But we have limited dollars and we have an obligation to fund public education. And that's where our focus is on making sure that public education is taken care of first and then we can talk about, talk about the other things after that. Yeah, Doug, go ahead. Yeah, Lori, I think uh, one of the things that's on the minds of everybody is making sure those classrooms have uh, teachers, right? The workforce um, shortage that's across the state, not only in the education industry, but virtually every industry that is part of South Dakota. And there's been a couple of bills that address that. Uh, the, a CTE bill that has allowed some flexibility in permitting of folks with uh, discipline experience and expertise within the various CTE disciplines. And then also an apprenticeship program that's had some success in a, in a pilot program where we had uh, more applicants than we could even uh, 
potentially staff with education and taking folks that are already connected to our school districts in the, in the paraprofessional and teacher aid roles and giving them the additional credentialing that's necessary to become a certified teacher. Great success in that pilot program and, and this year so far there's a, been a movement and it's, it's three-fourths of the way through the process to uh, get approved to continue that pilot and get another 90 teachers into our, uh, into our pipeline. So workforce development is, is right behind teacher salary in terms of, of being an issue that uh, uh, public education has uh, faced, but we're also supporting and trying to make a difference in. So one of the really important things about that is um, child care. We've been talking about that all uh, season on South Dakota Focus. That show is hosted by Jackie Hendry. And I'm wondering if either of you have something that you want to add to this idea that so many of these teachers and other professionals that are in the classroom are needing to have a place for their young children to go either for a daycare kind of service or an early childhood education. Are you working together with economic development groups or do you have a position? What do you want people to know? We'll start with you, Doug, and then Rob ask you if there's anything you want to add to that. So, Doug, go ahead first. Well, when we even talked about teacher salary, Laurie, we've talked about benefits. So uh, many, many teachers aren't working specifically just for the salary, but also what else can districts provide? And certainly amongst those benefits is the notion of, of childcare and uh, that being provided um, on site uh, in another provider location as part of the benefit package or any one of the number of programs. So yeah, that you've identified uh, something that is, I think, current and top of mind. It's also part of recruiting new folks into the profession, you know, as teachers emerge, that's also a time of their life where they're, they're going to be needing child care. So that's certainly current. Rob might be a little more informed because I think that's something he's worked on in the past. Yeah, I, I think uh, certainly in smaller communities, Lori, it's a little bit easier to be creative um, and find a way to incorporate that into, you know, even a school building. If, if you happen to have a room uh, that's available that you could bring a provider in and uh, yeah, what, a, what a great um, opportunity for young teachers who have children to bring them right to school with them put them into uh, you know, daycare right there in the school, be able to go down during your break or, or lunch to see them, and then also provide um, some of your students there an opportunity to come in and do some training and maybe work towards you know, a certification in that. Um, it certainly is a challenge all across the state, and uh, we haven't been, I guess, intimately involved in trying to work on or solve that, uh, sort of more on the fringes, but um, that certainly is a, a talking point and an issue you hear a lot about here this session. Yeah, um, we just have about a minute left for each of you, so maybe 30 seconds each on some things that you want to leave us with that are important in the final days of legislative session, particularly Rob, you go first. Um, yeah, I, I would say we, you know, I'll, I'll knock on wood, but we've had a, a really good session here in Pierre this year. Um, we, uh, we worked hard over the summer with some legislators to put some key pieces in place that we wanted to help move forward. Um, just to try and work on some issues that we knew were going to come before us, such as uh, you know making sure we had uh, the book policies taken care of in schools. Uh, the CTE was a big piece of something we worked on, and just things that we thought we needed to get out in front of and, and help legislators work on. And we're, we're proud of the work we did there. We're, we're hopeful for the 4% increase that has been recommended. Um, we're always looking for more quarters in the cushions here if we can find them <laughs> and uh, put them into salary uh, uh, compensation. But um, we'd be very happy with 4% if that's what we end with. And 
um, just look forward to uh, the next four days of, of hard work here. All right. Doug, 30 seconds, maybe 20, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, just briefly, the, uh, the compensation isn't the only way that you support teachers and having those classrooms filled with uh, um, additional staff and making sure that uh, the salary is something that's attractive is, is obviously what we'll be working on here in those last few days. So we're happy with that CTE bill. We're happy with the apprenticeship bill success so far and, and looking forward to how having those additional supports right. could, uh, could be uh, another way to boost the experience of teachers as they serve our South Dakota students. Rob Monson and Doug Wormadal, thank you so much for being here with us. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you, Laurie. From all of us at SDPB, we thank you for listening.